Hello and welcome back. Today we're talking about bullying in schools with Dr Paul Horton from Linköping University in Sweden. Paul takes a deliberately socially focused approach to this topic, focusing on questions of power, social relations and the ways in which school contexts and structures are implicated in bullying incidents. Paul has researched bullying in Sweden, Denmark, New Zealand and Vietnam, so he's an ideal person to guide us through the key issues and debates. I started by asking Paul about the strong tradition of psychological literature on bullying. Despite its popularity, what does he see as the limitations to psychological explanations of school bullying? So within psychology, a lot of researchers have started to use a social ecological perspective. Uh, so they're drawing on the work of Yuri Bronfenbrenner and this, uh, these different systems within it. Um, so you can think of that like uh, one of these Russian nesting dolls yeah. that you you know you pull it apart, and in the middle you've got this little individual doll. Um, so I would say that the focus has been very much on that individual doll, and then the next system that it's within, so the microsystem where the interactions are, uh, and to a lesser degree the next doll, the meso system, so relations between parents and teachers, for example. But there hasn't been much focus on the exosystem level, so decisions taken at the school level, for example, or the macro system. So that doll that you see when you put it all together, which I think yes. is quite fascinating that we haven't had focus on, you know, gender, sexuality and so on. And so when we talk from a more kind of sociological perspective, issues of power, I guess, come to the fore. Now, you've argued that actually it's that power is kind of also inherent in bullying relations, but we need to think quite carefully about power. Yeah, I mean, that's one of these key criteria or what um, has been called one of um, the hardcore assumptions of the bullying research field, uh, Peter Smith called it, uh, that there are these three criteria, that there's this intention to do harm or this harmful intention, there's this uh, repetition and there's this power imbalance. In early research I think there was quite a strong focus on size and strength because mm. there was a focus on boys and more physical direct bullying. Um, so that was sort of understandable in that sense. But what I've been looking at is more thinking about power in a different way, so not something that's so, something that you have. Yeah. Yeah? So certain individuals have more power than others. So they're bigger, they're stronger, they have more friends. But more that power is something that's exercised in different situations. So depending on that context, yeah. really, those norms, for example, but also the school context, what status that child has, and that it shifts, so it's quite a different way of looking at it. So you could say that bullying is a power relation in that sense, that bullying's used to gain status, to remain part of the group, these sorts of issues. So not just to hurt someone. Yeah, and you don't just have power or not have power, it's much more context dependent. Yeah. Now you've done research in bullying in New Zealand, in Denmark, in Sweden, in Vietnam. I mean, have you seen any kind of subtle differences or notable differences between those kind of national contexts or is it kind of a kind of more of a global phenomenon? It's an interesting question. If I take the three main examples where I've looked at it, so New Zealand, uh, Vietnam and Sweden, uh, where I've done most research in Vietnam and Sweden, then one thing that came up, for example, in Vietnam was how you understand bullying. Mm. So when I asked teachers and students in Vietnamese schools how they understood bullying, 
they often pointed to this uh, getting someone to do something that they otherwise wouldn't want to do. Yeah, yeah. So it's very much in line with this notion of power as conducting the conduct of others, you know, getting them to do things. And that's quite different to the Swedish context, for example, where we've had a lot of focus on it for what, 50, 60 years, where it's more focused on these negative actions that are repeated. Um, so it's a, a different focus there. So that would be one aspect. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's fascinating. So in terms of kind of linking back to kind of national culture or how, how do you make sense of that? Yeah, that's a good question. Why they've put it forward in that that way but I guess there's very little focus on it in Vietnam when I arrived it yeah. was sort of a controversial topic there'd been one report I think before I really? started my study wow. um, so it hasn't been as influenced by that discussion uh, and then I think in terms of understanding it you could look at the nuances in it so if you're looking at boys and masculinity in the Vietnamese context you'd have to look at um, Confucianism and Taoism and how that impacts ideas about what masculinity is and how boys should be. But it's not a world away from the New Zealand context where I went to high school, um, where, you know, there's a focus at my old high school was on rugby, on being tough, on strong and hard and these sorts of... So it's quite similar, but different explanatory factors. Yeah, I mean, that, that's fascinating. I mean, you've, we've already touched upon lots of different types and forms of bullying. Mm. In your research in schools, I mean, how do teachers make sense of these different behaviours? Now, how well-placed are teachers to actually make judgments regarding the relatively seriousness of, of different behaviours? Yeah, that, that's something that we've had a focus on in this uh, research that we've been doing recently. Um, and not only in relation to bullying, but in terms of uh, other terms that are used in the Swedish context. But in terms of bullying, we often talk about um, more direct forms of bullying, so physical, verbal bullying. Uh, and indirect forms, so relational bullying. And then you have cyberbullying, which can be both, uh, either or. Research shows that teachers, it's easier to see physical forms of bullying, right? And maybe more direct verbal forms of bullying, um, even though those can be quite coded. So teachers may have difficulty understanding what has actually been said, what was it that was degrading in what was said, and so on. But in the Swedish context, we don't have the term bullying in the law anymore. So we have the focus on either degrading treatment in one of the laws or harassment. So it's more these one-off acts um, that if they're repeated, they're considered bullying. So teachers are expected to focus on every act, which becomes sort of an impossible task. Yeah. And are teachers kind of trained to do this or given support or are they just relying on their own experiences of what they thought bullying was when they were at school? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, they have, they tend to have um, uh, plans for how to deal with it, where they have often have a definition of what degrading treatment is, of what harassment is, of what bullying is. But then when you come to out in the playground, for example, there's a lot happening on a playground, mm. right? Uh, and teachers tend to make distinctions based on how serious they perceive it to be, whether there's the intent to harm, however you're going to judge that, whether it's happened in the heat of the moment, so someone's screamed out something quite um, discriminatory in the heat of a football match, for example, then they might not take that seriously. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then how do you see that in relation to a bullying situation? Because they might not see all these things and how they add up to Absolutely. a bullying situation. So it's, it's a very difficult task. I mean, teachers are in a hard place, schools are in a hard place. I'm really interested in the way that you've done some work looking at how the school context might actually contribute to kind of these bullying incidents. And you've 
You've done some work on the, on what you term the social skirmish. I mean, before we talk about schools and social skirmishes, what do you mean by social skirmish? Yeah, social skirmish. That actually came. The idea came from I, I was observing a group of preschool kids, boys, who were playing with these um, building blocks, and they kept having these small minor conflicts over whose blocks they were, whose whose ship it was, who owned the dinosaur, things like this, and. This sort of led up to what the boys themselves called uh, the cliques war. So cliques are building blocks. So they called it this war, yeah. right? And they wanted me to write about it. They wanted me to ask them about it during the interview. So this term, the cliques war, I connected that to these small minor conflicts that sort of led up to it as skirmishes, like we would think with a with a proper war, yeah, right? Yeah. So these would be brief minor conflicts that could involve degrading treatment and harassment and could develop into a bullying situation or could be part of a more systematic bullying situation. And so these boys and their cliques war, presumably if the school had a million bricks, they wouldn't be... A, so you're kind of talking about the way that school resourcing can kind of contribute to these sorts of social skim. And can you explain a bit more about that? A key theme that came up in our research was the notion of resource scarcity. So what happens when these resources are finite, when they're highly sought after, what does that do? Um, so instead of looking at the behavior of individuals and these interactions, looking at, well, the school plays a role here. Um, so how does that impact? So for example, with the building blocks, there weren't a million building blocks. Um, they were quite a finite resource. And the teachers tried to deal with that by deciding that every Friday, all the things that had been built had to be taken apart so that there were blocks for everyone on the Monday. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, building blocks is one thing, but presumably this kind of translates over to all sorts of other resources. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you give us some other examples of this? Yeah, sure. Um, in terms of, for example, if you think about the playground uh, and the limited space, and that was something that both teachers and students brought up, that there's not enough space for that mm. number of pupils. So what happens when you have different uh, classes coming out at the same time? They all want to use the football pitch, which is quite limited. There's maybe three footballs. Um, so who gets to use it? How do they negotiate that? Um, but also in terms of swings, climbing frames, yeah. slides, seesaws. Yeah. You giving those examples kind of leads you to think that you can actually probably design the built environment and the resource environment of the school to mitigate or to kind of lessen. I mean, is, is that something you'd kind of push to? I'm thinking about kind of recommendations for policymakers. I mean, would you say that school design and the built environment can actually kind of be used to... To, to kind of avoid these situations? Yeah, very much so. And that's something which we're looking quite a lot at is um, because thinking about this social ecological perspective that I talked about, uh, Yuri Bronfenbrenner was quite clear in that you had to look at not only uh, the individuals and their behaviour, but also how that relates to the environment uh, and not just the social environment, but also the physical environment. So in terms of not just resource scarcity, but how the schools are built. If you have a school that's built and there's a playground straight out in front, it's quite easy to supervise. Mm. Right? But if you have a building where there are different buildings in the way and you have a lack of resources, for example, in terms of teachers, then it's hard to supervise that playground. Uh, and whether the playground is made out of concrete or grass, right? And we have uh, examples from a school football pitch, which is made out of concrete. And uh, students explain that, well, this makes conflicts bigger. Because if you get pushed over on a concrete football pitch, yeah, you're likely to rip up your knee, you're mm. going to get angry, you might get more upset, you might cry, and that might affect these relations, right? which then 
can continue outside of the football pitch. Which presumably is the last thing on the minds of the architects or the, uh, the people actually building the school and yeah. everything else. I mean, that f- it's fascinating stuff. Just to finish, I'm always really interested in people's future directions. I mean, you've done heaps of research and all sorts of stuff. Is there anything that you're just beginning to think about or think actually might be the next thing for the next five, ten years? Um, yeah, there's, there's a few things, actually. Um, so my colleague and I, Camilla Forsberg, and I uh, just got research for a project on LGBTIQ students' uh, experiences of homophobic bullying in Swedish schools. Um, so that's one area that we're, we're going to look more into. Uh, and then I'm, I'm looking to look even more at the school-built environment yeah. Um, yeah. in terms of architecture. Uh, and what I'd like to do is to use photography and um, uh, plan layouts of the schools and so on, but also to interview school staff from the principals down, students, uh, but also architects, builders, planners, how they're thinking. And from those answers, look at, well, what could we do to the actual context? Because I I think it's an ethical question when we're talking about school bullying. We've put a lot of focus on the kids and their behaviour, but we've also decided that they they have to be in school up to a certain age. We've decided the number of kids that can be in classes and can be in schools. So we've contributed to building an environment where if it is impacting these relations, we need to take that seriously. And it's not just the individual. exactly. Being a bully. Fascinating. Well, thanks ever so much for taking the time, Paul. It's really, really interesting research. Good luck. Thanks for inviting me.